Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. This is Pat Leahy and I'm sitting in for Hugh Linehan for the next few weeks. I'm joined by Fia Kelly and Sarah Barden from our political staff and by our former legal affairs correspondent and author of a book on the Supreme Court, Ruan McCormack. You're all very welcome. We want to discuss this morning the judicial appointments legislation that is currently going through the Dáil. It's been a subject of considerable political controversy uh, for several months uh, now. It has finally reached the floor of the Dáil. And a few moments ago this morning, this is what Shane Ross had to say about it. After 30, 35 years uh, in this House and the other House, uh, I'm beginning to learn that the difficulties of actually getting something which is a mild reform uh, through the House and away from the Bastions and the and official island is is a much harder project than I had anticipated, because this is a bill which fundamentally reforms the judicial appointments system. Well, two sentences apart. There we have this legislation described as a mild reform and a fundamental reform. Ruan, which is it? I think on the face of it, it's it's mild. I think what what. Um what Shane Ross has done is to identify a real problem, which is that we, ever since the state was created, we haven't given much thought to how judges are nominated. The president appoints on the nomination of the government. That's what the constitution says. But very little thought has gone into how that nomination process should work. And each time we have thought about it, on the rare occasions when we have, it's been due to a political crisis or an immediate political problem. So in the mid-1990s, in the heat of the Whelehan uh, affair, the controversy over the appointment of then AG Harry Whelan to the High Court, position of president of the High Court, trust broke down between uh, the two coalition partners, Fianna Fáil and, and Labour. And in, at- in an attempt to restore trust, four members of that government went off to a hotel in County Wicklow for a couple of days and thrashed out what became the Judicial Appointments Advisory Board, which is the process through which most judges have been appointed since 1995. But they didn't do any serious research. You know, they didn't look at what other countries have done. They didn't consult. They didn't um, go through any sort of elaborate process. This was a, a quick fix for a temporary political problem. And that's what Brian Cowan, who was one of the, those four politicians, subsequently called it. And I think um, my reservation about what's going on, while I agree with the diagnosis um, <coughs> of the problem Shane Ross has identified, I think the problem, and I think a lot of people's objection to it, is rooted in the fact that this isn't the result of any research, consultation, um, serious consideration of what's been done in other countries. Um, Alan Shadow, when he was Minister for Justice, commissioned a cons- opened a consultation around in 2014 where he looked for submissions from all sorts of groups. The Department of Justice never published that material, and we don't know to what extent that input was taken on board when they were drafting this, but we do know 
that the outline of the current proposal, the current legislation, was thrashed out during the negotiations for the programme for government last year, and that it's essentially driven by Shane Ross. So you could carry out a process, a really elaborate process, and come up with a solution that looks very much like this one. Um, and I think if you had done that, if the government had done that, there would be much more faith in it, and there would be probably more support for it within the Oireachtas as well. But I think that's at the root of the problem. But there's also constitutional imperatives. I mean, the idea of taking the selection of judges out of the political environment completely is impossible under the constitution. It is. And I think this is another one of the problems with how the bill is being sold. Uh, Shane Ross said a couple of days ago that this that we had a rotten system, a politicised system of political appointments and that this would change all that. It plainly won't change that because the constitution says the president appoints on the nomination uh, of government. And you can't change that unless you change the constitution. You need a referendum for that. And so what this will do is it'll constrain the government. On the face of it, it'll constrain the government a little bit more. So at the moment, the Judicial Appointments Advisory Board sends uh, seven names for each vacancy to government. They can choose from that list of seven if they have, presuming they have a minimum of seven applications, or they can uh, go outside that list and choose whoever they want. And they have done that on occasion. Whereas with the new system, three names will go to government. They can pick one of those three names or they can still go outside and pick their own person. The rhetoric that has surrounded much of this bill, much of it from uh, from Shane Ross, has been quite inflammatory, re- referring to, you know, this kind of dirty system of political patronage uh, and that. the um, one, one gathers that their lordships are much put out uh, by this. I mean, how genuine is their upset and how... How damaging is that for the relationship between government and judiciary, which is always a kind of a distant, properly distant and and complicated one? I think the judges feel humiliated. I think that's what's at the root of this. And I think you have to remember the context, which is that they feel extremely bruised by what's gone on over the last five to seven years. You know, this can't be seen in isolation. It can't be seen... um, in isolation from the d- disputes over pay and pensions uh, since twenty eleven, well, since twenty two thousand nine, and they feel that this is a further attempt to undermine them, particularly the removal of chief just the chief justice as chair of the new advisory body, um, and to a lesser extent, I think the imposition of a lay majority, which I think they could have lived with, had had it had a had there been more consultation with them from earlier on, and b if the chief justice remained uh, remained the chair. Um, I think at the same time, the judges haven't been blameless. Uh, I, I think it's they're on really dubious ground when they intervene publicly and say, we think this legislation, which has been approved by the cabinet, remember, is a bad idea. Not only saying we, we think it's a bad idea, we think it's ill-advised, we think it's been too hastily put together and so on. I think there's a line we don't, you know, that line isn't written down anywhere, but we intuitively know roughly where it is. And you can't escape feeling that the judges have gone pretty close or past that line in the last couple of weeks. But I think it is a, a result of this frustration, this sense that they have that they're being humiliated and that the, the structures they've put in to talk to government, so the Association of Judges and another sort of informal um, channel through the Attorney General's office, that they're not really, that those channels aren't really working and that their views aren't really t- being taken on board. Sarah, do you discern much sympathy uh, for the tender feelings of the judiciary around Leinster House? 
Um, I don't know, but I, I do think that amongst the general public, there's a great deal of respect for members of the judiciary. So when they come under um, attack in this in this regard from the Minister for Transport, Shane Ross, you know, the automatic reaction of the general public is to side with the judiciary. I think in your question to Ruan, it kind of sums it up. You know, Shane Ross has tried to paint a picture that there is a a grubby or a dirty system in place at present. Um, and as Ruan points out in his piece today, there's nothing to suggest that there's anything particularly wrong with the system that has operated up until this point. And there's no, and as you've said in your own piece today, there there's no rationale. Feel free to quote me uh, liberally. <laughs> there's Add no, some weight to your argument. I think. There's no rationale for why Shane Ross has made this such a priority for him. I mean, um, the, the fact that the bill has moved at the pace at which it's moved is is worrying. The same level of scrutiny that has been applied to minor other pieces of legislation hasn't been applied to this piece of legislation. And one can't understand why um, there is such a necessity to have a lay chair if there is a lay majority. And nobody from government, no matter how many times you ask them or what way you ask them, has been in a position to explain that, including Shane Ross. I mean, he, he has made this, you know, his number one political priority um, since the 2016 general election, but has yet to actually fully explain why he is so obsessed or why he's so fascinated or why he's so determined that it has to be this way and this way only. Um, And, uh, you know, I think from the judge's point of view, there is a huge degree of frustration that has built up um, uh, among them, particularly since the ref- referendum on judicial pay and pensions. Um, and, but I think that the step that they took this week was unprecedented, but probably one that they had to take because their views weren't sought when this bill was drafted. Their their bill ha- or their views haven't been sought as this bill progresses through Leinster House. What you often see with pieces of legislation is that you get interested bodies in to give you their opinion on the pieces of legislation. And sometimes amendments are made, sometimes they're not. But they haven't even asked uh, you know any member of the judiciary or bodies that represent them for their for their thoughts on this. So you know it's quite a sticky situation that the government find themselves it's in, but it's one entirely of their own making. And even though this bill will probably pass the way it's been presented to us and probably passed before the summer recess. I think the implications of it are quite uh, are quite long-standing. The, this seems to be part of, or certainly listening to Shane Ross, he places this legislative initiative in uh, as part of his lifelong struggle, uh, if you like, against what he calls cronyism, or rather what he calls cronyism! Uh, in, uh, uh, in in most of his contributions, is that uh, is that is that credible? And I mean, he he has, I suppose, recently enough, been party to some pretty insidery looking appointments and nominations himself. Not least in his uh, not least in his within his own ministerial staff. But you know, the appointment of Maura Whelan was probably the most insidery of all recent judicial appointments. Yeah, the great irony is the Maura Whelan controversy smacked of everything Ross has railed against when it came to not only judicial appointments, Shane Ross has a record of, you know, raising the issue of state board appointments. You know, he, he constantly throws back the appointment of Celia Larkin to the National Competitive Council at Michal Martin. So this is his life's work and he casts it as, as he sees it, the insiders, the, uh, as we just heard on the clip, Official Ireland and the insiders, and he is the one who brought this message to Leinster House and is now seen to be acting on it in government. And he has made it such a totemic issue, as Sarah has said, 
that there is no backing down from anything now that's in that legislation. Like the the the, ch- the chief justice issue is the one that's concerning Fine Gaelers the most. That they cannot understand why the chief justice can't chair this commission, but because Ross has decided he's going to die in a ditch over this, and he has the government over a barrel on it effectively, because the Independence Alliance would be ready to support him on this if he decided to walk. Well, John Halligan definitely would, and perhaps the others. And would this, follow. Is, this is classic coalition yeah. politicking, isn't it? It's the smaller partner demanding something that the larger partner might see as unreasonable, but is willing to give up to keep the show on the road. Yeah, it, they basically. There is no love for this in Fine Gael at all, but they acknowledge that it has to be done to keep the show on the road, that they made the independents swallow hard with the Maura Whelan appointment, and this is payback for it. That this is going to happen anyway, but the, the, this attempt to get it through the summary assess is the, way, the, the price they paid for it. Now, in saying that, Ruan's point about the judiciary making their voice heard over the last while has, I think, been listened to in some aspects in government buildings, particularly the point about pushing it through like emergency legislation and with undue haste. That's why we saw yesterday this idea of we're not going to push it through, we're going to let everybody have a say in this, there'll be no guillotines. I think they are bending towards the judiciary on that point of view. It's largely cosmetic, but they're trying to say, look, we hear you. And I would imagine when this debate gets underway tonight, well, it was underway last week, we'll hear the voice of backbenchers tonight, we'll have a Gael parliamentary party meeting tonight, the issue of the Chief Justice, I think we're going to hear again and again, why can't she or her successor, whoever that may be, chair this commission? Nobody can really understand that. How are the numbers stacking up, uh, Sarah? And it, it looks very likely that this will pass the doll with, uh, with Sinn Féin support, but... More doubt about uh, how it's going to work on the Justice Committee and then when it gets to the Shannon. Yes, so the Justice Committee um, is made up of three members of Fine Gael, three members of Fianna Fáil, two members of Independence for Change, that's Mick Wallace, Claire Daly. Uh, two and they mem- spoke of the bill last night. Yeah, uh, just two members of Sinn Féin, including the chairman, Quivino Coelon, and one a senator, Francis Black, who um, has tended to vote uh, with Sinn Féin in, um, in votes so we would take it as that she would be supporting uh, the bill. Now Mick Wallace and Claire Daly spoke last night and they actually referenced much of the stuff that Ruan and Fiek have said with regards to how they feel as the Justice Committee has been railroaded into uh, passing this bill without the proper scrutiny that it requires. They were very negative about the bill and the one thing they were very negative about was um, the imposition of the Attorney General on the Judicial Appointments Commission. Um, they said that if this was supposed to be an end to political uh, patronage, then why would you have a member of Cabinet sit on the Judicial Appointments Commission? Um, they seem to be leaning towards voting against it, but they didn't state it categorically. Um, I think that they'll probably be you know, going through the motions um, at the Justice Committee. But if... if if they do vote against it, um, you would have three Fianna Fáil TDs who would vote against it. That's two independent for changes. change. That's five. Um, but you would have uh, three members of Fine Gael and three members of Sinn Féin, well, including Francis Black, Black that would take it over the line. But the, but the chairman would have to use his casting vote in that regard. I think the bigger problems are when you get to the upper house. Mm. <laughs> Like There's if you look at the upper house, the upper house, if it rejects it, you know they kick it back to the doll. As it's, as has been mentioned, you know I think Sarah mentioned her digest this morning. What knock-on effects will that have with the Susan Denham's successor? Yeah. Like if it's kicked back to the doll, the rule is three months. Does that three months include the summer recess, or could we come back to mm. wait till the doll? Well, it's, un- again? it's unlikely at this stage to be the methodology by which mm. Susan Denham, the Chief Justice's successor, is chosen. 
I think so. I think um, you know the, the Chief Justice wouldn't have gone through JAB anyway. I think that would have been a decision that the government would take, and I, I can't. You know, I, I'd be very surprised if that appointment was delayed because of the delay in enacting this legislation. I think they would just take a decision at Cabinet. They might feel obliged to have more of a discussion at Cabinet this time than they did in, the, in when appointing Moira Whelan to the Court of Appeal. There might be some more window dressing uh, applied to it this time. But I think the government could and probably would take that decision pretty quickly. There, there is, um, in a lot of the debates that I've heard, and I've listened to Shane Ross's speech in the Dáil uh, this morning, um, th- there is an inherent contradiction, I think, between his consistent and, and acerbic, virulent almost, attacks on the system of appointments and his praise for the quality of the judiciary and its uh, and its performance. I mean, if the system is so awful, how does it produce such, a, uh, such brilliant judges? Well, this is the question. I mean, you know, he has some great slogans and I don't think anybody would object to the idea of you know, uh, eradicating cronyism in Irish life and making appointments transparent and so on. The problem is, what evidence is there to suggest that political patronage plays a big role in judicial appointments, particularly in the superior courts? My experience... You've written about this. Yeah, yeah, I wrote a book on the Supreme Court and my, my conclusion would be that it's extremely difficult to find any evidence of a correlation between the party that appoints a judge, particularly a judge in the High Court or... Supreme Court and now Court of Appeal, and the decision-making of that judge once, once they get to the bench. Um, you have loads of cases through the last 90 years where Fianna Fáil appointed Fianna Gael-leaning judges and vice versa. You have lots of examples of um, judges taking a line that was diametrically oppo- opposed to the, that of the government that appointed them. That's very common. Um, so I, I just don't see the evidence for and academic re- research carried out in the last year sort of backs this up. I don't see any evidence for um, patronage being a, 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 an important factor in judicial decision making. That said, I think it's inescapable that when you look at the district court and to a lesser extent the circuit court, um, personal relationships are really important. So it's not just that you know the local solicitor um, or a local official um, happens to be a member of a political party and therefore gets preferment on uh, in district court appointments. It's to do with personal relationships, um, and that's clearly a factor. Now, the question then is what you do about that. Um, my argument would be that you could have fixed that through reforming the jab. The problem with jab is that they don't have the resources to interview people and carry out any sort of a, an assessment process. And the, it's a new, very the, the, the new body will be, I mean, Shane Ross was for many years the hammer of the quangos, and, uh, and this is he's setting up a new one. Yeah, Where, whereas you could have just reformed the jab, uh, and it would have been quicker and probably more straightforward and cheaper too. Um, so, so I think the problem he starts out with is there's a great slogan, um, which most people wouldn't object to, but there's very little evidence uh, and there's a much easier way to solve the problem he's trying to solve, I think. There's one more aspect of this that, uh, and goes to the motivation of, of this, that I want to discuss. And I think we have a clip that, that sets it up. If people ask me a question, do I have an agenda? Yes, I do have an agenda. And I've had an agenda all my political life on this. And that is that political interference in the selection of people who sit on state bodies or in positions of state or the public purse should be reduced to a minimum. Deputy Matty McGrath, last night, made a point which I think was perfectly legitimate. We trust 
ordinary citizens in other situations. We trust them emphatically. I think if you look at this here, if you listen to those those clips, you'll see actually some of the essential components of populism. You know, this demonization of the elites, this notion that politicians and the political elite is inherently is inherently untrustworthy, that their decisions are tainted by uh, self-interest and set against that this veneration of the wisdom of the ordinary uh, people that he referenced there when uh, talking about uh, Manny McGrath's contribution. I mean, those are classically the elements of a populist appeal. They really are. But the unspoken implication of what Shane Ross is saying there, he says, why can't we trust lay members to make good decisions? The implication is, uh, what's unspoken is the implication that we can't trust judges to not to appoint their friends or those without merit to the judiciary. And, and there you've got a problem, because if that's true, what are we saying about all the, the other decisions that these judges make? Mm. We entrust these people to make life and death decisions. We ask them, when does life begin? When does life end? Um, we ask them what the Constitution says. We give them the final word on what the Constitution says about some of the biggest political, social, economic questions we face as a society. And is Shane Ross, is the government saying that... Um, they can't be trusted on any of this. Because presumably if we entrust this huge responsibility to them on these big issues, surely we can trust that they have a self-interest in ensuring that the judiciary is of a high quality. But not not alone is there that mistrust of the judiciary running through the motivation for this, but also an even greater mistrust of politicians. And Shane Rosfiak, I think, is really is playing on that great anti-political spirit of the age. He's He's an anti-political politician. He's drawing on the mistrust of the pillars of our system. Like, you know, Ruan has said, he is casting aspersions on the decisions the judiciary will make. And one thing I heard, which is quite concerning this morning, which is one to watch as this debate plays out, is the fact that certain people who are in favour of this bill might bring in the previous issue of judges' pay onto the floor of the doll and demonise them. That's using something completely separate to set them up as, you know these people who are only out for themselves. And it is a thread that runs through Ross's public career, like going back from his his, his, uh, his columns as a journalist. He has always railed against this position of state boards. And the issue of state boards is the last government also had trouble with this after the appointment of um, the Fine Gael councillor, whose name escapes me at the moment, to... McNulty. McNulty. And they reformed the system to such an extent that you have to go through an interview process. I think they still hold a certain degree of discretion themselves. But... A couple of people have said that that actually goes against the spirit of people volunteering for these boards because the remuneration of them is not very great. It's a couple of grand only. You actually find yourself out of pocket for doing it. A lot of people do it out of a sense of public spirit. Now, there are people who want to get on it for networking reasons, etc., etc. But the fact that it's so restrictive now, it doesn't encourage people who may have expertise to give to do so. And Ross's way of pursuing his political goals is going further down that road. And in fact, it actually repels people from taking part in public life to a certain extent. He's made serving on a state board so unappealing to the majority of the public. I mean, what what Fiat said is right. Majority of people that serve on state boards is because they want to do something good for the organisation in which they've applied to be a member of. I mean, he has made serving on a state board like a really 
dirty thing to do to to have a state board appointment on your CV is something you know that that is wrong or something what he's actually done in, in addition to what the government brought in for his own department he sent out a memo in December to say that he wouldn't um that he would be ab- abiding by the government uh process with regards to state board appointments but he'd also be adding further restrictions for his own for um bodies that are under his own department's auspices so he to end this thing of having 10 names sent to him because heaven forbid he'd have to look at 10 names of people before he could pick state board appointments he only wants three people now to come to to land on his desk he has they they go through one interview process um with the public appointment services state board for state board appointments, he wants them to go through a second and potentially a third before their names come to his desk. Like this is Ireland. We we only are, we have a country of a couple of million people. Like there's only a certain amount of people for every sector of the economy and mm-hmm. society whose expertise you can draw on or whose expertise you would want to draw on. Yeah. Let's be honest. And you're you're repelling people from doing that. I know someone who served as the chair of a state board who gave it up because he said, "Look, I'm out of pocket for all the work I'm doing. It's not worth the hassle. Why would I bother?" And if that's the climate we're encouraging now, it doesn't speak well for the state of our public life. It's a difficult political tightrope for him to walk because by virtue of his office, he's at the apex of political power in uh, in Ireland. And yet his prime motivation for uh, uh, in, in many of his initiatives there appears to be to drain that office of as much political power as he can. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I mentioned in my digest this morning that Ross as a politician and a person has not changed, but his position has. He's mm-hmm. now a cabinet minister. So while he was a headache to people on the opposition benches, he's now a migraine in government. I think, you know, he is in a position now where he has more in- interest in matters um, that are outside the remit of his own department. And it, it, it's a win-win situation for Shane Ross. It seems like whatever he proposes in whatever department he chooses, will get across the line because the government are so determined that they want to yes. keep this afloat because Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are, are not ready for a general election. I suspect this will be the high watermark of his you know, achievements in government, though, given the ill feeling this is engendered in Fine Gael. I don't think that he can push as hard on anything else as he's pushed on this if it comes to the crunch again because this is written into the programme for government. He doesn't have anything else as totemic as this for himself other than steps like Garda Station, which he's going to get anyway. But if he decides to push once more, like he's pushed on this, I suspect Finnegan might try and face him down because the ill feeling that this has brought to the cabinet room, to the to, to the doll, I don't think people but will want to revisit to say it again. But that he's probably one of the most powerful politicians yeah. in cabinet. Yes. I mean, the two things that he has asked for since the general election is the reopening of steps like Garda Station and this bill to be processed and passed. Both of those things have been done. If you look at Finian McGrath, I mean, he asked for uh, Beaumont Hospital, um, a cystic fibrosis unit to be a- to be opened in Beaumont Hospital. John Halligan, we all know the situation there with cardiac care in Waterford, neither of which have progressed to any great extent. The, the, the Beaumont Hospital issue hasn't come to a head yet, but if it doesn't, it could cause trouble as well. But Ross is the one who shouts the loudest and gets the most attention, so he uses that leverage to great effect for his own personal point of view but it is classic coalition politics the junior party always has to get something mm. for, Labour, for the Labour Party it was uh, the X case it was the uh, same-sex marriage referendum those were the issues it asked for and got didn't get much else besides and but yet they gets ha- no credit and yes gets no credit but they have to get something voters. and they have to make their voices here at some stage and this is one of the issues that Ross for whatever reasons has decided he needs to make his voice heard well a central uh, uh, 
the central part of the other work of uh, government, insofar as there is any other work of government at the moment, would be the construction of the budget. And the first stage of that process took place this morning. Fiac, you were down at the National Economic Dialogue in uh, in Dublin Castle. Just very briefly outline what that process is and, and, and how it fits into the beginning of the budget process. Yeah, it was uh, this NED, as it's called, though someone said it was like TED, but nowhere near as interesting at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it basically was a kind of a SOP to the social partnership uh, process of, of days of your basically you bring in all you know trade unionists people who are concerned with various uh, like housing social policy into a room ask them to give their views to ministers half the cabinet is down there listening to it although they come and go there's not much by way of substance comes out of it apart from the fact it's the government saying we are listening to what you say it's a process in moderating yeah. expectations yeah, for the budget so we're, six, we're they basically it's it's the first part of the budgetary process you know we are here we are listening to your priorities um, the teacher gave a speech down there which he reprises themes of you know I want to give something to people who contribute to society. And on the way in, he spoke of his insistence that he will reduce taxes on work in this budget, even though the fiscal space is very limited for 550 million so net. tax cuts are still on. Tax cuts are still on, he said. Uh, and bear in mind that that 550 million is inclusive of the public sector pay deal. So this is very limited. But what he did say, he said he was open, or he said he wasn't, certainly wasn't ruling out other revenue-raising measures to pay for reducing taxes on work. So, you know could see various the Department of Finance working various schemes that would raise revenue elsewhere in the system to pay for his promise of, as he put it, the people who get up early in the morning and pay for society. Thanks, Fiac. And that's all we have time for this afternoon on the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. As we come off air, we hear that the Justice Committee this morning has decided not to take the committee stage of the Judicial Appointments Bill next week. And that seems likely to retard the progress of the bill possibly until after the summer. So we'll be talking about that one again. Thanks for listening.